When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and this is the first episode of Season 3. Can you believe it? This week's episode is a little bit different and a whole lot of fun. My guests are historical ghost tour guides Andrea Janes and Leanna Renee Heber, authors of A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts. Andrea and Liana are tour guides at Burrows of the Dead in New York City, and their new book is a truly spectacular collection of the true stories behind America's most famous female ghosts. There are way too many to cover on today's episode, even though it is a little bit longer than usual, but we cover so much ground. It's half history, half hauntings, and we talk about everything from theoretical physics and the stone tape theory to what ghost stories can tell us about real history. It's a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, everybody, I am so excited for today's show. My guests are Liana Renee Heber and Andrea James, authors of The Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. We're so glad to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here. So you guys are ghost tour guides. uh, And that is so exciting to me because I don't know if everybody knows this, but I was actually a ghost tour guide for several years uh, down here in North Carolina. So it's it's great to have you on the show. Now, you actually came to write this book because of an experience that you had on one of your tours. Uh, Would you guys be willing to talk about that? Sure. It was uh, kind of this wonderful thing where I had been writing fiction for a long time. And um, I started working for Burroughs of the Dead because Andrea and I had been invited uh, years ago at this point. Oh my goodness, we're what, almost 12 years ago now? Maybe something even more, a, a long time ago. Um, we were both invited to a ghost storytelling event and I had been working as a tour guide uh, since I moved to New York in 2005. I very quickly got my tour guide's license. I knew I wanted to write about New York City. I knew I wanted to know all about the history of the city. And so being a tour guide, when you're an author and an actor, you know, you need a side hustle. So I thought, well, tour guiding, that's good for a performer and someone who wants to be into the history of the city. So I got my tour guide's license. And here, here years later, Andrea and I were at an event and uh, we were telling ghost stories. And I just really liked her whole approach. And I, I had been aware of her company of Burrows of the Dead. And I really just liked how it seemed very straightforward, history focused, respect for the dead focused, which, you know, definitely is attracted me to her company um, about how she was sort of presenting the company. And so I kind of thought it was this big operation. And I, I said to her, you know, I do have my tour guides license after we'd done these, you know, wonderful readings. And uh, so if you ever need anybody, um, I, I would actually love to be 
working in the types of things that Burr's the Dead is doing. And uh, turns out I was her first hire because uh, that was, she was a one woman operation, <laughs> but it's, but she made it look really, really um, expansive and comprehensive. And so, so I was the first hire. And then years later, I had an editor on one of my ghost tours who was familiar with my fiction uh, and said, you know, you really should do a nonfiction about ghosts. I really like your angle. And I'm like, well, my angle is also part and parcel of Burr's of the Dead's angle. So let me then turn around and bring in my boss. So it was this wonderful thing of like, Andrea hired me. I got to bring Andrea into the book. It all became this full circle thing because at the end of the day, her and I have a very shared vision, even though we have very different approaches and we have different uh, paranormal experiences. Um, we have a shared approach of respect for the dead above all else and how, and how we talk about the, the way that spirits and ghost stories and all of the lore, all of the ways in which it can inform our past, our present, our future. So that just, it felt like the most holistic thing. I didn't, as I've told Andrea, I didn't have a single second where I imagined doing this book with anybody but her. Like I just, I, it was never a question of me doing this book on my own. It was not, it was not, I didn't want to do that. Um, it was always something I wanted to be a shared, um, a, a sisterhood as it were. We, we recently got a review that said that there's a, there a haunted um, sisterhood um, of, of folks who like spooky things and understand their impact through history. And so we were like, yeah, no, it's, it's, this is our sisterhood. So welcome to our sisterhood, Jessica. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I'm so glad to be here. So how long has your tour company been running? Can I tell you, it's been 10 years this October. And I thought to myself, as soon as I realized that, I was like, oh no, do I have to throw a party? I hate parties. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just hoping maybe I can, I don't know, give people gifts instead and then not have to go anywhere. Um, But yeah, I'm always happy to talk shop. One of my biggest fears in life is that I'll become a huge bore because I love talking about ghost tourism so much. And I'm like, nobody cares. And when we were writing the manuscript, I always had to check myself because I'd be writing a ghost story and then I'd go off on a tangent about the ghost tour industry and I'd be like, all right, reel it in, reel it in. I love ghost tours. Um, I have to preface everything by saying that I love them and they're my favorite way to learn about a city and I take one every time I visit a new city. But I sometimes feel when I'm on them that they're a little unsatisfying and, you know, the ghost story itself has so many opportunities to be unsatisfying. And I think everyone has had the experience of reading an anthology, either a fiction or nonfiction or watching a movie or a show and being like, it didn't quite hit the mark. It wasn't quite scary enough and um, or it didn't quite resonate with me enough. And, and ghost tours have the same problem with expectations. You know, the ability to pull off a good ghost story is really, it's really hard and it's really rare. And it's a combination of like the way you have to make a joke land and comedy and the way you have to evoke real fear and horror. And you're doing it all while on a busy city street, which in a place like New York is really tough. And so you have to, you kind of put on this one person show in the middle of the street for two hours on a Saturday night, maybe in the rain. And you are juggling all these different tasks and skills. And it's like kind of magnificent when you pull it off. and really disappointing when you don't and I have good days and bad days Mm -hmm. so there's days when I'm like I hit every note and that was amazing 
um, and people clap and they love it and, and people are moved and inspired. And then you have days where people just, you know, they're not feeling it or whatever. And those days are really hard, but they're amazing practice for a storyteller because you, when you see your audience's eyes glaze over, you're like, okay, pick up the pace. It's amazing. And it's just this wonderful, like editing on the spot, you know, improving on the spot. And then, you know, the, the other unsatisfying quality with a lot of ghost tours is just the really slapdash nature of their history. Yeah. And I found it really frustrating when they were like, you know, people say, I mean, there's really no way of knowing, but supposedly this person lived here once. And I'm like, there are lots of ways of knowing. You've got property deeds, you've got historical records, you've got obituaries. I'm like, come on, people, there's so many ways of knowing. Um, <laughs> look at that, I'm getting a work call as we speak. So, um, you know, but and I mean, sometimes there are no ways of knowing and there are huge gaps in history and the historical record. And that's where this like really kind of cool metaphorical overlap comes into play where the gaps in history in what we can know about a certain place and a certain time and a certain person and so often um, mirror or rhyme with the gaps in recorded history for women and for minorities and for people who were written out of the historical record or elided or overlooked. And so they become ghostly in the narrative, in the history, and they sometimes literally have ghost stories attached to them. And it's this kind of like twinning I really love twinning and doubling. And so the, the symmetry of these like metaphors and the literal ghost story coming together in that like gendered nuanced kind of way, I was like, yeah, invisible women, invisible labor, invisible stories, invisible people, actual specters, haunting, history, memory, you know, revenge, uh, what we owe people in the past, what this country owes people, you know, it's just like, whoa. So it's like an extended metaphor. Um, so it's, I don't know, it was like a really cool, honestly, writing this book was a dream come true because a lot of times when you're a ghost tour guide, people will expect you to write these like historical guidebooks, which is another thing I love, but also it was something I didn't want to do personally. It didn't call to me. And that's not really the kind of nonfiction research I'm good at. I think that I like to do meta analyses of like existing stories and see what the connections are and sort of like run them through the mill of my own thoughts as opposed to just, you know, retelling. So yeah, so this was a dream come true, this book, honestly, it really was. It was so fun to write and well, hard sometimes, but really cool to just see it all hopefully come together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, and of course with, with ghost tours, and, and one thing I think that you guys really brought through in the book as well is sometimes the history is a lot scarier than any ghost story you could ever tell. Yeah. That's the crux of it. That's the crux of it. We, we're not interested uh, in jump scares. Um, and we, that's in, in some ways because you, you can tell, and, and I, the, one of the reasons why I loved, you know, uh, I have loved working for Burrows of the Dead and, and I and knew I could bring uh knew that our vision was going to be shared in this book is that you know there's you can look at our at, at andrea's website for birds of the dead and you know that it's you're not going to get a jump scare you know you're not going to get something that's like fabricated or um you know cheesy uh uh capes and fangs and any of that kind of stuff that like we don't need costuming we don't need we have new york city that's the backdrop. You're never going to out, you're never going to upstage New York City. So don't even try. 
So just be there, be present, be present in the moment and attach your narrative to the building that is right in front of you and don't work too hard beyond that. And I feel like that's how we are with our history is like, let's, these women are fascinating. We don't need to make them more fascinating. They already are. All we can do is try to get as much information about them as we know how to get. And then, hey, let's talk about why they're interesting. And then leave you with you, the reader, with those questions. Because again, we it, one of the things that was very important to us in this book is not to tell anybody what to think. Um, we don't, we can't prove the paranormal one way or another, and we're not going to try to. And we don't want anyone to ask us to prove it because that's not that's not possible at this current level of science. Maybe science can get there at some point. I don't think science and the paranormal or science and, and the metaphysical are at all at cross purposes or at all antithetical. So, um, but that, that kind of um, sense of, uh, of, of making sure that at the end of the day, we're just telling these incredible stories and then there's interesting lore attached to them, but we had to be very careful not to try to dress it up or, or because that's where, when you start to sensationalize something, that's where the problems happen. And we unpack that a lot in the book. And so really it is like, at the end of the day, much like many horror films will tell you the, the people are the scariest, not yeah. necessarily the monstrous, uh, you know, uh, uh, offshoots from it. So I feel like, I don't think ghost stories have to be necessarily scary by nature um we have some definitely disturbing things in there but it really is for us the true horrors is sometimes what happened to these people and and also uh, the lack of control and the lack of agency in a lot of cases that for me is where the true horror is and um and we've got lots of different range in the book of things that are are not necessarily scary ghost stories some of them are really heartwarming mm -hmm. yeah absolutely is there anything you want to add to that andrea no, my mind was wandering. <laughs> I was thinking about Edgar Allan Poe and just like, so yes, to everything the narrative said, um, I feel absolutely the real horror is human and some of the best stories are just like simply good yarns. And one of the things that I really love about not just the stories we wrote about, but the stories we tell on our tours and the idea of haunting is just the way that presences are never really erased. And I kind of love that. And, and New York City continuously builds on itself and destroys things and puts new things up. And it creates this like layers and sediment of history and energy. And, and that energy is really palpable. And there's a sort of like haunting eternal sense to history when you think about like tracing a path. So like whenever I do my Poe tour, I think about tracing a path and I'm like, now I'm walking down the street that he walked down and now I'm going in the building that he went in or more accurately, usually standing next to it. So a lot of these buildings, you can't go in anymore. Um, so we were walking through the park on Saturday, me and some tourists that I was giving a private tour to. And we were walking through Washington Square Park on the way to the Edgar Allan Poe house on West Third Street. And there was a group of amateur actors in the park. It was the 23rd of April. So I guess it was a Shakespeare day or something. And um, they were performing King Lear. And they were like college students performing King Lear in the park. And I was like, these are the things that delight me is when I'm walking to Edgar Allan Poe's house and I see people playing King Lear, which apparently his mother and father played in. And that's why his name is Edgar because he's named after a character in the play. And I'm like, it just sort of makes you feel like there's these little webs all around you and they're just like attaching themselves to you. 
And I don't know, it's just a really fun way to recalibrate a city that like, you know, you walk through a hundred times or a thousand times and it kind of starts to feel mundane after a little while. And it reinfuses a little bit of magic and weirdness. And I don't know, you just get these, these strange, wonderful moments and they're felicitous and bizarre and I love them. And I don't know, I love, I love all that weirdness. So like, yeah, for sure, there's a ton of horror, but there's also just a ton of stuff that's a teeny tiny little bit left of center. And every once in a while, you feel like you might go into a time slip and you're just like, there's something magical about this. I have no idea if spirits are real, but it feels like they are from time to time. It really does. I love it's that. Lovely. And there's something about retracing paths. So there's a, there's a theory in physics that basically time doesn't exist and, and everything is happening simultaneously. And, and that, you know, some people think that that can explain ghosts, not that they're dead, but that it's actually happening just on like a slightly different plane. I love that. I think about that. I say all the time, I just said it in a lecture. I just said in a lecture Monday night for um, a group of university, uh, women university professors. And um, I, I said this, that exact thing that there's a lot of theoretical physics that sounds a lot like a ghost story. And that may very well be um, like Andrea's talking about energies are interacting all the time. And so that's something where I try to bring my guests into the energy of a space. And I, and I fully, you know, I, I go into, uh, this may sound a little bit woo, this may sound a little bit like, you know, um, new age, but Ooh. think about the energy around you. Because even though uh, you may not see a spirit here, I can't conjure one up for you. And if I did, I'd be a fraud um, in terms of like, uh, you know, ghosts are like cats, they don't come on command. Um, and so I, I, I feel like that energy is something that's palpable. And so I invite my guests to look at the different energies and feelings that each one of our spaces that we talk about, um, creates, because I think that's something that they can sense on some kind of level. And I try to like level it out for them. Say, you can always feel if someone has had a horrible day and that you can feel their energy being down, even if they have no expression on their face. You can tell when something is off. We, we all have that hairs on the back of our neck if there's possible danger. If you're just listening to it one way or another, there's a, there's a way we can all be energy sensitive. Um, and so I kind of encourage my, my, my guests and, I, and the people that read my work, whether my fiction or my nonfiction, because all of it, it has metaphysical aspects to it, to just kind of open up to these possibilities and then just sort of live in that existential question, which is the title of my introduction section is existential questions because that's really where all of this is. It's we're, we're asking a whole lot of questions um, about some of these facts that we're presenting. Here's facts, here's things that are myths and legends and reported hauntings and sightings and whatnot. And somewhere in there is some kind of truth. Usually it's gonna be your personal truth because it's going to vary, your mileage may vary depending on uh, each one of these situations. And, you know, Andrea and I both have been in very haunted spaces. We've had very similar energies. If not the, we, we never have had the exact same circumstance, but we've often had a similar sense of things at, at very, very different times. So it's never gonna be the same, but I do feel like that energy, uh, that piece is very, very uh, real somehow. And I, so I think whether it's physics whether it's something else entirely, I don't know, but it all feels like it makes sense to me in sort of a global, we will never completely understand it sense, but I, I'm okay with that. Other people are very unsettled 
by not being able to have an answer for these things. And for and and our our book will unsettle those people on that specific level. Um, and some people get very frustrated by that. I, I can't help them with that frustration. All I can do is help them with the questions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Was there anything you wanted to add, Andrea? No, I was just thinking of one of my good friends who's a retired NYPD detective. And he says, point blank, I don't believe in ghosts. So there's like thick New York accent. He's like, they're not real. Ghosts aren't real. And um, he admits, he's like, every detective will tell you, you have a gut feeling. And he's like, most cases, partly like, you know, footwork, partly evidence, but he's like, a lot of cases, gut feeling. Every detective will tell you. So even this like very macho, very old school, very like a uh, skeptical guy, he's like, yeah, it's in your gut. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, see, we're all, we're all kind of on the same page then in our own way. Yeah. Yeah. Whether you apply to, to ghosts or not. And uh, that's yep. actually a, a great segue. So you mentioned that most of the people who come on your ghost tours are women. And I certainly noticed this when I was leading tours too, that mm-hmm. women are more open to the idea of ghosts. And, um, you know, weirdly, they're actually braver than their male companions who tend to kind of reject anything as like skeptics. So why do you think women are more open to ghost stories? Well, I mean, Leanna, I can take this one and start with my theories yep. if you want. Do it. So- like, this is what I think. Women and men have been taught these gendered reactions to the spirit world, you know? And in the West, in this time, in this place, we have been trained in certain ways. Um, and so anything that has to do with caring, feeling, intuition, superstition, dreams, astrology, what have you, it's all been like put into the female sphere. Now, of course, lately these categories are being interrogated and investigated and people aren't as accepting of these gender divisions, which is great. But growing up, you know, I, I was born in 1979. I was a kid in the 80s and in early 90s. And like stuff was really gendered. And that's just kind of how we grew up. So I do think that most guys have been conditioned to not think ghosts are real. Um, women are allowed, quote unquote, allowed this irrationality. And that also goes way back to very, very early, early like Cartesian Western thought, right? Um, and this this kind of false dichotomy between the rational, the irrational, the feminine, the masculine, day and night, and so on. So part of it is totally a gendered construct, and part of it is like, you know, this inheritance of complete nonsense that we carry with us every day. And then part of it, there is a certain validity to the notion that women have been, and I say this in my introduction to the book, historically associated with death whether they are the caregivers at the point of death, whether they are you know, washing and bathing and dressing a body, um, or whether they are delivering babies, which is historically and still really sadly in this country to this day, um, a process that's fraught with mortality. So, you know, and will probably only get worse now that I think about it. Um, you know, so we kind of, the process of giving birth is something that really brings us close to death um, historically, in, and we're both very much Victorianists, Leanna and I, in the 19th century, historically, women dealt a lot with the loss of children, with infant mortality and with child mortality, um, and they would have dealt with that continuously. So, you know, it's just this kind of historical coupling of women and, and death, the materiality of it and the spirituality with it, um, of it. So, you know, there's, there's all of these very gendered constructs. Um, and I think that primarily goes to explain most of it. I don't 
think there's any like essentialist reason for women's interests in ghosts. And in fact, a lot of my friends who are not interested in ghosts at all are female. So, I mean, it, there, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a hundred percent, but um, yeah, it's, I think a part conditioning and a part just our, our own, I don't know, mm-hmm. ability to be curious maybe, or identification with the spirits possibly. So many ghost stories in our lore are female. And so maybe we just like those stories because we can we can identify with them. I have no idea. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. We do seem to be more more open to it generally. So here's a question for Liana. When when I uh, saw this, that, that this made you angry, I knew I had to ask. So we talked about the Victorian ideal of the domestic angel in our Monstrous Women episode with Dr. Nicole Dittmer. And that idea does come up again here. You mentioned an essay from this time called Of Queen's Gardens, uh, which, I, which I understand is still uh, problematic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, okay, so John Ruskin was sort of the voice of, of the pre-Raphaelite movement. Now I love pre-Raphaelite paintings, but, uh, but a lot of the pre-Raphaelite dudes were, were uh, pretty misogynist, um, John Ruskin being the, at the forefront of that. Um, he essentially, in Of Queen's Gardens, he's basically like, women need to stay walled behind a garden and protect themselves and like, you know, cultivate their, their innocence and their purity and their beauty and their, and their domesticity for the wild man who must go out into the world and be manly and do manly stuff and then come back into the sphere and then be like tamed by this, uh, you know, sort of angel of the house figure. And uh, really made me mad because it just really was like, literally you're saying that we need to be trapped in this, you know, we're, we're just this hot house flower that is, is pretty and we have no use and function out in the world. And it just, that <laughs> just, just still makes me mad to think about. And it's really like not questioned within his own essay. Um, and interestingly, and then I go on to say in the book that, you know, John Ruskin had some issues about actual women being actual women because, you know, he did not consummate his marriage because he couldn't handle that his wife was an actual adult female with, um, you know, pubic hair. Um, and uh, yeah, so he like couldn't, like they actually got an annulment um, and this is famously documented. It was a huge scandal at the time. And she went on to marry the uh, uh, not misogynist, uh, John Everett Millay, the, the, um, the, the beautiful painter uh, who did a lot of work and they had a lot of children. So um, the, I, that, the issue of like, okay, we have to keep women like children. And then also the inability to accept his wife as an actual adult uh, and then here was this leading voice in in the uh, in sort of literature at at and culture at the time. Um, then that the in- infantilization of women is is quite literal in all of that uh, in a way that's just deeply troubling. And I do think that sort of that we have to keep women innocent and pure and all that kind of stuff. Whether it's purity culture, whether that's you know all kinds of different ways in which that is still pervading our our modern mindsets it's still in there and uh and it and it's still something that we need to kind of address um because you know whether it's the puritanical roots of of some of the beliefs of this country there's a lot to unpack um the stuff that led to the witch witch trials in the 1600s is other things that were you know women were trying to fight against to just be seen as fully human 
within the 19th century leading up to, you know, any kind of, let alone suffrage. Um, just being seen as human uh, was, was something that wasn't even fully recognized by the law until the 19th century. So it's, you know, it's been a process. So because of that too, that's also, I think, why the interesting in ghost stories and true crime and things like that, it's because we have to, sometimes we're on our own. We have to sort of problem solve all kinds of weird situations that we're gonna be in. And whether we are or are not believed, that's really, I think, where another thing, a crux of, of, of women and ghosts, uh, women are very often not believed. So indulging in the paranormal in a space with other be possible believers in that question mark, we live, women live in question marks. So taking a ghost tour or listening to a true, true crime podcast is going to break down some things that maybe we've experienced one way or another of feeling unsafe and problem solving our way out of it. So I feel like there, that's also, you know, going back to that essay that makes me mad of like, okay, well, I am forever going to problem solve my way out of the walled space that that, that mindset would have wanted to put us into. Beautifully said. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, we still are, but especially during this period, women are very, very repressed and they, they were kind of looking for any way out of that. Right. Which is kind of leads us to the American spiritualist movement. Mm -hmm. So what can you guys tell us about that? It was full of women. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was, it was, it was basically invented by women uh, building on, it's really important to understand that the spiritualist movement in the 19th century is building on the Shaker and the Quakers. Um, so the Quakers and the Shakers were both, uh, those were sort of derogatory terms that they kind of embraced. Um, uh, the Society of Friends is the official name for what we refer to as Quakers. And the Shakers were an offshoot of that. And the Shakers were founded by Mother Anne Lee, a woman we talk about in the book. Um, and, and she, they, the Shakers and the Quakers were so named because they would tremble or shake with the power of the Holy Spirit. So it was, they were looked at as complete weirdos by the rest of the Protestant church, uh, very repressed and very um, put upon in England, uh, which is why so many came to this country. So um, so we re you really don't have spiritualism if you do not understand the speaking as the spirits move kind of vibe of the Shaker and the Quaker movement, which was you know talking about connecting to a greater, spirits um, and sometimes spirits uh, in the 1700s, let alone uh, in the 1800s, but full of women, uh, some of them very problematic, some of them using it just as a way forward. The concept of seances uh, and, and speaking with the dead was a huge comfort for a time period when, as Andrea mentioned, mortality rates were so high. And then you've got the civil war and that just really catapults American spiritualism, the concept of wanting to speak to a loved one whose body you couldn't recover from Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. um, that became the idea of a whole, a whole spirit separate from uh, a, fa of a failing body, sometimes a body in pieces. Um, the concept of those whole spirit was this huge comfort. So whether or not spiritualists were or were not uh, legit psychics, most of the famous ones were in fact debunked and not. Um, there were people working in the movement whose names we'll never know. But um, uh, it's, it's a complicated, fraught topic, but it is directly in line with also women having a public voice in this particular sphere in which they could be seen as experts. And thusly, it's directly tied to the suffrage movement too. Andrea, what, what did I miss on that? 
Nothing. Perfect pricey. I mean, it's just, I love that idea of literally having a voice because women were actually forbidden to speak in public. Um, so in the 1840s, you know, a woman, she just had no platform, literal or figurative, to speak or to make her voice heard. And, you know, a woman can stand up in a regular church. She could stand up in a spiritualist church and address a congregation, but not in a traditional Christian church. Um, so, you know, you have this actual literal manifestation of a speaking voice. Ironically, it is only accepted and tolerated in society because it is presumed to be some other entity speaking through this woman and using her only as an instrument. But you can see how easy it is to subvert that for your own purposes. The spiritualists let the spirits move them to speak. And um, Susan B. Anthony was so impressed with their kind of thunderous address to audiences that she said she wished she could be a spiritualist because she was so tired of going to suffragette meetings and having the women speak in teeny tiny little voices that no one could hear. Um, so it's just a kind of a funny metaphor. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Like there was... It's funny because we don't think about some of the basic demands of the very early women's movement. Um, one of the very basic demands was free love. And that was not what we like in our 1960s minds, you know, thought free love was like, that's I think when the expression came to be solidified in, in our minds. Um, and it meant something totally different in the 20th century. In the 19th century, free love just meant that you had the right to marry somebody who you loved. And if you didn't love him or if he abused you or something, you had the right to divorce that person and marry your soulmate. And this was really radical. Um, and if you get down to a granular level, and there's a little bit of a content warning here, if you get down to a granular level, the idea of marital disharmony rested a lot in the concept of marital rape. And there were a lot of women who were tired of having unwanted babies. Um, and so, the idea that they could divorce this person and, and leave them was surprisingly a big part of these radical, mystical, early new age movements. Um, and, and this kind of like forced birthing was one of the things that early suffragists and spiritualists spoke out against. So that's something that has always stuck in my mind as this kind of like horrific scenario. Um, and you can see why these, really traumatic and scary forced birthing scenarios still feel really relevant today. Um, and you, you don't really wonder at the increased interest in spiritual topics among women living nowadays uh, when you think about it. So yeah, it's, it's really, it's all tied up into this big package. It's a rich tapestry. <laughs> yeah, that connection is is really interesting, but but so many of these themes, I mean, it really drives home how similar we are to to the people that came before. You know, like history isn't as far away as as people like to think it is. You know, you can say like, oh, the 19th century, oh my goodness, that was so long ago. Nobody remembers it. But but they were going through a lot of the same things that that we are still going through and and fighting for the the same things that we still have to defend. Yeah, um, and it's funny because I, I think Americans really need to have some sort of requirement where all all citizens have to take a history test yeah. because like we do not we do not teach history properly, and it is the historicism in this country like the the way that people will think of 150 years ago is really long ago 
or say things cannot possibly be remembered or proven when there's ample documentation or just the idea that like, <clears throat> I don't know, a lot of times there's a lot of debate about ascribing contemporary values to historic figures and there's a tendency to sort of like ha ha point and laugh at those wacky Victorians you know what I mean like it's just the, the idea if if we all got our heads around the idea that historical figures are really very similar to us today and kind of removed this need to like either valorize or demonize people in the past I think that would be really helpful mm -hmm. um you know are problematic all people are all problematic so it's just you know I really think this country needs a very good history lesson and frankly a spanking I can't believe yeah. that we're talking about child labor again like I really can't believe that that is back in the news you know, mm -hmm. we start we start this book with the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory fire the youngest victims of that were 14 year old girls and I just it just makes me sick because people are just sort of bringing the, you know, uh, uh, some states are trotting this back out as like, uh, as a solution for, you know, labor shortages or whatever. And I really just can't, I just, I, I, I just can't stomach it. But yeah, we're, we're all one, we're all one law away from the 19th century here or there, um, whether it's women's rights, whether it's, you know, um, whether it's any kind of like, you know, your right to uh, marry someone of any gender, like it just is like <laughs> all of the all of the anti-trans legislation, it's all, it's all just a, a sickening retread of other putting people into these rigid boxes um, and then not even letting them thrive there. Like it just really the, these punitive punishing um, kinds of things that that are are to me just really really harrowing um and and because I spend so much time in in the 19th century and my especially in my fiction because all of my fiction is set in the 19th century and so um you know I've gotten you know one star reviews from people who are like oh wh why are they talking about feminism in the 19th century and I'm like because my book is set in 1918, my book is set in 1899, and Victoria Woodhull ran for president in 1872 with Frederick Douglass, a black man, as her running mate. So, like that, yes, that was a radical act in 1872, but it didn't mean we weren't talking about women in politics in the 19th century. So, like, what you know, but people just want to, like Andrea was saying, just like have this completely ahistoric view of what people were talking about, um, and just saying, oh, we couldn't possibly. Uh, when, when just the tiniest bit of research will prove that no people have been talking about these things, just like, you know, people of all kinds of identities have always existed. This is not a, you know, things are not some modern invention. So <laughs> that's just, you know, all the, the ways in which we, uh, are timely with this book. We did not necessarily want to be timely with child labor or some of the, um, uh, some of the women's issues, uh, but but goodness, it's there's some resonance there. So, just a little bit, and you know, I, I saw just yesterday that certain politicians are also going off um, or going after, I should say, uh, no fault divorce now. Yep, uh, as a, as a way to fight the the sort of so called epidemic of fatherlessness. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my god, like like the worst thing that could happen to you is to grow up without an abusive dad. Like Jesus <laughs> Christ. But this goes right back to what Andrea was saying about the original free love movement. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Same thing all over again. And you know, it's incredible. Um, I mean, you both make such amazing points, but uh, 
you've really managed to, to succinctly summarize what we are doing with this podcast and why we're here. <laughs> it's just perfect. Really perfect. Um, and of course I experienced the same things with, uh, with my books too. I mean, mine are set in the, in the 17th century, but you know, people are, are constantly saying like, oh, this is anachronistic. This never happened. So um, I started the blog actually as, as a place to kind of put my research about like historical birth control because people kept trying to say that like condoms didn't exist and they did they were just horrible you know, <laughs> you know but that's like neither here nor there really but uh yeah i know that you understand another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So um, you guys, you know, of course, you're, you're both authors as well. You both tell ghost stories. You know, you're the experts. Would you guys be willing to share a couple of your favorite ghost stories? So I have a spiritual connection deeply to Sarah Winchester and the Winchester Mystery House. I have a absolutely harrowing and deeply disconcerting connection to Jan Bryant Martell and 14 West 10th Street, which I mentioned in the unreliable narrator chapter. Um, and that's uh, uh, something that still unsettles me. So, uh, but then I have a great amount of delight about Mary Becker Green, Ma Green, the first woman to get her steamboat pilot's license in 1892. And she was a captain of Green Line steamers and uh, raced her husband uh, in separate steamers on the Ohio River in 1903. And she won. And it was this, this national thing. She was a beloved figure. People would take her boat. Uh, they would get tickets for her boats just for her company. Um, and she was this larger than life figure who watches over the Delta Queen after her passing. She passed in the stateroom uh, after everyone else, she, she outlasted everyone else in her family um, and passed in the stateroom of the Delta Queen uh, and and still sort of watches over that ship. And I, I love her. She's this, just this, if you see pictures of her, she's just this, you can see her energy off of the picture she's just delightful and there's a wonderful statue of her um on the on the ohio river um my hometown of cincinnati um uh, right across the river is Kentu covington kentucky and there's a um a beautiful park right there riverside park that has a statue of her and i love that she is in fact remembered and celebrated and not this you know this she is a local hero so it's not i'm introducing her beyond she's not necessarily nationally famous but it was nice to to see that she has some love in her own statue and is remembered there so i think the thing that um one of the things that i felt really called to do um was lift up some really fun stories but also like correct some things you know because uh going back to sarah winchester so many myths were told about her through her life we all think we have this sense of sarah winchester driven mad by the spirits of those killed by the winchester rifle and she was driven out west to keep building and building on her house until and you know to appease the spirits none of that was true all of that was a fiction made up uh during her lifetime and then solidified after her death because the year after her death the Winchester Amusement Company opened in her house and turned it into a fun house, mystery house. And so all of these sort of spooky things we think are ones that were created for 
a building that is now owned by a guy who used to and run by a guy who used to work at Disney. So this is it's an it's an entertainment franchise at that house. But the house historian who is legitimately interested in the actual history of the house, she says, I have to walk a fine line because people come here expecting a haunted house and it is a haunted house, but just not haunted in the ways that you think. And so for me, it was really uh, that my my Sarah Winchester chapter was sort of a pilgrimage to try to find out her truth. And um, I went to the house specifically. I also went to her grave in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and I prayed at her grave for her blessing and her understanding. And, um, and also to sort of say how sorry I was that so many lies are told about her um, when she was just sort of an introverted lady who didn't, who gave millions in, in money of that time, of 19th century and 20th century, early 20th century money, millions of dollars in, in, in uh, charitable causes. And, um, and we still don't really entirely know what her thoughts were about why she did what she did. Um, but the fact of it was she really liked architecture and she had a lot of money. So um, the book, the, the, the house is her sketchbook actualized. In, in real time. And she liked paying people what they were worth. She paid her workers twice what anyone else would pay in California. And she loved the idea that she could help people to a better life um, and also have fun with some of her, her art architecture. Um, and so, uh, you know, we do a little bit of myth busting in the book. And that to me is the most, one of, that's my most important myth busting. Um, which you know is is definitely something where I'm still lifting up the the Winchester Mystery House. Don't worry if you go and you visit it, it is still haunted. You can feel palpably the power that's in that house, and it is confounding and odd and wacky. And she's eccentric for sure. Um, but we're all of was she was she a mad woman? Absolutely not. So that was that was me wanting to set the record straight. So funny that people ascribe this kind of madness to her like endless tweaking of her house. But I'm like, are you kidding? Endlessly tweaking a never finished project is the most identifiable character trait a person can have. I'm like, that is so, I so readily identify with and understand that. It's like, that's so human. It's so human. <laughs> it's really yeah. weird how that got pathologized. It sounds like fun though. Like if you, if you had like, you know, some land and an endless budget, like why wouldn't you? It'd be fun. It, it sounds like a, like early HGTV, you know? Exactly. Sorry. Yes. Winchester meets the Property Brothers. I'd love to see that. <laughs> that would make an incredible show. Oh my goodness. So uh, what was your favorite story, Andrea? Uh, I have a lot. Sorry, now my mind is just wondering why the Property Brothers aren't like doing paranormal. Anyway, so um, <laughs> I really love the story of Dolly Mammy from Pequasson, Virginia. Dolly Paul's Mammy was her nickname. Dolly Paul's Messick. And she was a woman who lived in Virginia in like a kind of a tar paper shack down by a swamp. Um, I guess it was a marsh really, not a swamp, it's a marsh. And uh, she asked her lazy teenage daughters to take in the cows one evening. The cows were grazing on the common, which is interesting. Um, so they're grazing on the common and she asks her lazy teenage daughters to take in the cows uh, one winter evening as the snow is beginning to fall. And they say, no, mom, we're too cozy by the fire. And so she's like, fine, I'll do it myself. And she goes out and she stumbles in the snow and in the dark and she ends up freezing to death in the marsh and she's discovered the next day. Um, and then she goes on to haunt her daughters and she does, 
things like, you know, she scratches them while they sleep and she bothers them and she prevents them from relaxing. And she, if they do fall asleep, braids their long hair together into one unified rope. And so they wake up and they cannot untangle themselves. Um, and I find that story really fun and satisfying. It was frustrating to research because there are a lot of people named Dolly Pauls Messick in Quassin, Virginia. Um, so it was hard to pin down exactly which one it was and the date of that story. But um, I found the imagery of that story really delightful. I liked all the, the snow imagery and the hair being braided together had a fairy tale like quality to it. Um, and I also found it refreshing. You know, there's like a lot of really sad stories about ghost mothers in ghost lore. And they're always really, really, really hard to read. So it was fun to find a ghost mother who was like kind of sassy. Um, so I enjoyed that. And then um, speaking of sassy mothers, this is like a huge fan favorite. Uh, Joan Rivers, just knowing what you know about Joan Rivers, it's so delightful to imagine that she lived in a haunted apartment, um, which apparently she did in the Upper East Side. And she had this whole rigmarole where she called in a, um, she called it a voodoo priestess in uh, the episode of Celebrity Ghost Hunters, which I watched, which inspired me to write that chapter. Um, celebrity Ghost Stories, not Celebrity Ghost Hunters. Celebrity Ghost Stories. Um, Anyway, so she said she called in this quote voodoo priestess and um, the woman she called in was named Sally Ann Glassman and she's a real voodoo practitioner who lives in New Orleans. And she came in and she, you know, kind of cleansed the apartment and whatever. And she also advised Joan to put fresh flowers around the apartment, um, to put up this one specific portrait in the lobby, to say goodnight to this woman who they dubbed Mrs. Spencer, you know, to treat her with kind of deference because she was sort of the old doyenne of the house before it had been turned into apartments and it was like a Gilded Age mansion. Um, so Joan kind of ends up making friends with the ghost and she is a widow at the time that this happens and she kind of is a bit lonely and she enjoys the comfort and the friendship of this spirit who comes and visits her. So, you know, Mrs. Spencer and Joan's kind of spectral friendship, I thought was really beautiful. It's a real hoot just knowing what you know about Joan and everything about her personality. And you can hear her voice kind of in your mind when you're reading the story. Um, and then equally sweet, I thought, was that she became friends with the, uh, the voodoo practitioner. Sally Ann and, and Joan were friends for the rest of their lives. So I just, I don't know. I always say it's like a little ghostly golden girls. It's like just very sweet to me um, and a lot of fun. So I like that one. That's a great story. That's really sweet. That's wonderful. So uh, you mentioned in the book that, you know, there was this Victorian adage that women should only have their names in the paper three times, right? At birth, at marriage, and at death. So in this time, I mean, women are, are really like supposed to be invisible. So you cover an incredible range of hauntings in the book, and each one tells us something different about the, the history of women in this country and, and that sort of invisibility, right? So whether it's due to like dissatisfaction or injustice or unfinished business, do you think that women are more likely to become ghosts? I think their stories are more likely to end up being romanticized in that way. Mm -hmm. um, to quote our old buddy, Edgar Allan Poe, you know, it's nothing more romantic than the death of a beautiful woman mm -hmm. or am I misquoting him the know. most poetical topic yeah thank you yeah. <laughs> I was like yeah. that didn't <laughs> <laughs> That's the most poetical topic right is the death of yep. a so yeah I mean it's certainly certainly tempting to romanticize that to fetishize that and again like just we spoke a little earlier about true crime right the fetish 
fetishization of the dead girl, the pretty dead girl, pretty white dead girl. So, you know, yeah, I think these stories are apt to be fetishized and romanticized. What do you yeah, think? But also to the, the concept of, of howling and screaming into uh, an endless future of, of, of being heard. Um, I do think the, 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 there is an agency that these ghosts and, 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 a, and a, a, an immortality that these ghosts have lent to their houses who they, you know, um, the, the women, we, we mentioned many women whose potency and choices in life, whether, whether it was their acumen in business like Eliza Jamel in the Morse Jamel mansion, or whether it was Gertrude Treadwell simply staying in the house that she had been born in long after everyone else had moved uptown and keeping this house exactly as Papa would have liked it. And we've, that's in quotes because we can't specifically ascribe that to her, but it, that haunts her ghost lore. So we had to at least mention that sort of phrase, this, this uh, time capsule of, of a house, uh, even though she died in the, in the 30s, the, uh, the house was kept like it was the 1870s and 80s. And so this, you know, these sort of these figures out of time, even in their own lifetime that are out of time, um, that, that whose presence is persist in their house, have given them a national fame that their lives could not. And so they are more famous in death. Uh, Andrea wrote about great um, uh, Sybil Phelps uh, who'd wanted to be an actress, uh, wanted to be famous, but she's famous in death because she's got a very haunted space that's, you know, that the historical society throws a, a birthday party for her every year. And she's known to make noise and show up and, and you know, rattle, rattle around a bit. Um, and, and so in some ways there's a way of like living into uh, into this famous new life. Um, same with, you know, Kate um, Morgan, the beautiful stranger of the, of the uh, Hotel del Coronado. She had a very sad life, mysterious end to her life. We don't really know why she, um, the, it's a story of self-harm and, and taking one's life. And it's just very, it's very tragic, but her ghost seems to really enjoy kind of, being known and and seen and being sort of respected a certain deference that the hotel will give to her um and and there's a there's a sort of delight that her spirit seems to have that it didn't have in life and maybe that is exactly what andrea said maybe that's just pure romanticization but i like to think that maybe shedding the mortal coil can provide a new avenue for that energy mm -hmm. um so it's like, I, for, for me, go, ghosts represent a possibility. Um, and that to me, as someone who likes the concept of agency for everyone, uh, I like that there's ghostly possibilities ahead. This, this sort of like, again, the, the twinning and the doubling, it's like the, the historical erasures and, and anomalies and eruptures and like women who refused certain roles or who didn't quite fit in or who somehow you know, just hovered at the margins. I think that we all have this sense that there are systems in our world that aren't working. And so when Leanna talks about the possibilities of other worlds, I think the creation of other worlds is really tempting and really beautiful. And when you have been consistently thwarted in any agency in this world, there's a kind of wonderful satisfaction to, you know, maybe imagining there is a way of making your presence known 
in other worlds, creating alternate systems to the very dissatisfying one that we have that has led us to a really ruinous place. Um, just carving out these places. And again, that's what I picture ghosts as. Ghosts are, they could be time slips, they could be energy, but I always picture them as these anomalies and these ruptures. And for me, I always think of them as like the ghost in the machine or the glitch in the code. They're like something isn't going as it should in the system. And part of me always wants to cheer whenever that happens, whenever some small rupture makes us, forces us to reconsider this current reality, um, which again, just doesn't seem to be working for most people. <laughs> so it's, yeah, there is something hopeful about that. Um, and, I, and I like the idea of a sort of cosmic rebellion in that sense. Mm, yeah, definitely. I love that. And, and of course, a lot of historical sites uh, like that of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire are, are thought to have residual hauntings, right? So for, for people who aren't familiar with this concept, um, can you briefly explain that the stone tape theory? Oh my God, I love the stone tapes. The idea that you can imprint energy on a material thing. In stone tapes, it was literally they thought that the stone had recorded past events. Um, but it's just the idea that, you know, place memory is exactly what it sounds like, that a place has residual memory and energy and that something that happened there is somehow materially imprinted on that actual space, that actual fabric, that actual building. Um, whether you can literally play that recording, whether it's literally in the stone or not, um, or it's just kind of metaphorically, energetically there. Um, but yeah, I like residual hauntings a lot. Residual hauntings seem to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. It, like you can walk into a room after somebody has a fight and you can still feel it. It's like the same mm -hmm. thing. It's yeah. Particle it's, and wave. What's up? Particle and wave. Mm -hmm. That's the theory. I, I also feel that the residual haunting aspect is the thing that our audiences, I don't know if this is true for you, Andrea, actually, we haven't, I haven't asked you this. I feel like residual hauntings are the one thing where like even the skeptics will be willing to consider that. Um, so there's, I get the most nods on my tour when I talk about residual hauntings more than anything I else. Think it's a very rational theory. I mean, and it's also something that a lot of people have felt. If you go right. to Gettysburg, if you go to Notre Dame, if you go to a place that is sacred or intense, um, you feel it you feel it right and yeah. and it's if you don't you're i think you're in denial a wee bit honestly <laughs> and most people do most people acknowledge mm -hmm. that it's real. So. yeah resonance the psychic <laughs> resonance yes. mm -hmm. uh, that that's definitely something and and i and i and i do take it outside of a haunting and talk about this historic place where so much has happened and that's that does, that really does, people do pick up on that. So I think that's, then it's easier for me to extrapolate. It's sort of like residual haunting for me when I'm on a tour, it gives, it gives me a baseline with my guests. Or even like psychometry, the idea that an object is imbued with something, some essence. Like if you have an heirloom, I have a statue from my grandmother that I love. And it's like, it is her in material form on my dresser. You know, it's just this, it's not a very far-fetched idea. And I think a lot of people can understand it in, in rational terms and it doesn't alienate people who don't want to be moved. They're like, yeah, I can see this happening. So. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Okay, so uh, going into our, our myth busting section just a little bit. Now, I, I absolutely love Savannah. I've spent a lot of time down there. I do a lot of research on the history. And you have this great chapter on the Sorrel Weed House, which of course is one of their most popular attractions. And, and you're talking about how uh, one of their stories doesn't quite add up. So how can ghost tours accurately represent the past without like sacrificing a good story? Right. And that's a big one too, because like, who doesn't love a good yarn? Right. And that is the, that's the American way print the legend. Um, and I also love a good story. So what am I, what am I supposed to do? I don't want to be one of those cranks. that's like, well, actually, um, but like we said at the very beginning of this interview in New York in Savannah, in any town, any place in this country, in this world, I think you'll find the legend and the truth are equally interesting. And in some cases, the truth is even more interesting. So um, sorrel weed is super problematic, but um, you know you can certainly talk about the um, wartime history of Savannah. The you know is the Battle of Savannah and all the bodies that are still there under the entire city. You can talk about that. That's real. You can talk about the power dynamics at play in the sorrel weed house and in that family. Um, and you can just talk about the way that societally we're still quite haunted by a very troubling legacy, you know, and I know people are like, oh man, please don't tell me the ghost, the ghost is a metaphor. That's the worst. Um, you know, and it is, it is the worst when the ghost is a metaphor, but in this case, it kind of is. Um, and then you could, if you were so inclined to tell the real story of the people that actually lived in that house, because it's jaw dropping. Um, Francis Sorrel had the most unbelievably just fascinating and kind of awful life. I mean, he lost his mother when he was an infant. He lived through the um, rebellion, the slave uprising in Haiti when he was a small child, which would have been a very scary thing. Um, he had a really complex relationship with everybody in his family and in his household his own identity. Some people say that he was of mixed race. And so he would have had very, I guess, complex feelings about, you know, just everything. So you don't have to reduce it to the romance. You can talk about the romance as something that maybe is a legend that people talk about and then use it as a way to kind of say, okay, let's open up the scope here and, and see what are the power dynamics at play without, you know, <laughs> making it into the soap opera there is still a ton of drama and there's still a ton of just incredibly intense stuff. Um, Molly herself, apparently there's like a ship's manifest where an enslaved woman named Molly left that house in a certain year and boarded a ship for New York City and never came back. So, you know, maybe there's some truth to it. Maybe some stuff is real. Um, you know, but to me, the ghost story in that house is really gilding the lily because you don't even need it, right? Um, that being said though, and this is what's so disturbing about that site is it's kind of just like a cash grab, right? It's a super easy cash cow. And so they're like, they're not gonna, <laughs> what's the expression, kill the goose that lays the golden egg? Like no one's gonna do that in the tourism industry, which is why there's an ever-present tension between history and you know tourism dollars and entertainment. And it's tough. Um, if they were to become a historic interpretive site that told accurate narratives with context, they would make one one hundredth of what they make now, you know, and they would need government subsidies and donors to survive. Um, so that's the that's the reality. I think the best that you could do 
is add a disclaimer, tell the story sensitively, hire people who are able to tell the story sensitively, talk about social context, try and get as specific as possible and as accurate as possible. And if you want to throw some paranormal stuff in there, I don't think you're totally outside your purview there. Not just because also there's the Battle of Savannah and that history, but also because like I say in the chapter I wrote, I found myself feeling very haunted by the stories in the sense that they, they stayed with me and got under my skin and I really felt them. Um, and I think I said that it's kind of like a tulpa, like you kind of will this ghost into being, you sort of create this thought form. So, you know, maybe, <laughs> you know, the humans are the scariest thing. The true stories are the scariest thing. And also the thing that you're seeing is less interesting than the person doing the seeing. So how are we interacting with these ghosts, creating these ghosts, holding them within ourselves and becoming them in our own ways? Like these are, but again, these are like really kind of metaphorical out there, metaphysical questions. And you, you're never gonna make a ton of money off of those. So yeah, you just, you just really honestly, uh, capitalism, real talk, you have to make your decision. You have to decide what, what kind of tour operator you want to be. Um, and then I suppose if you really want to go for the bucks and the sensationalism and the ghosts, make it up, make it a totally fake haunted house, strip the real names, do a Disney haunted mansion thing. You know, don't, don't sully the names of these real people. You know, that's, that's what I would say. Make it a, you know, sleep no more. It's like this thing that happens in New York and it's like an interactive, immersive haunted house experience. Make it like that. Mm. Yeah, and then you'll make it. It's at the crux of this is the, is the power dynamic in play. That's what, that's, that's what, where it's problematic is that yeah, at the core of this, you have an enslaved woman mm-hmm. at the core of that story. And so it's like, it's not, you can't making stuff up about that horror is irresponsible. That actually leads me pretty perfectly to the next question. So you write that when done properly, ghost tours have the potential to serve a very serious purpose. The ghosts, as historian Tia Miles put it, can be messengers from another time that compel us to wrestle with the past, a past chained to colonialism, slavery, and patriarchy, but a past that can nevertheless challenge us and commission us to fight for justice in the present. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? How can ghost stories help us to, to grapple with our more difficult history? I think they're a great way to Trojan horse those topics into everyday conversation. Um, people will come for the ghosts and they will find themselves compelled to stay for the history. And this is the great irony in cash grabs like the Sorrel Weed House is if you actually give people a chance, it's like you said, on your ghost tours, you found people curious and interested, right? If you give people a chance and you don't dumb things down and you don't water things down, people will rise to the occasion. And they're actually more than willing to reckon with really serious, really disturbing topics in ways that are surprising because, you know, a ghost tour is sold as entertainment and then people get there and they are just so much more willing to have deeper discussions than you ever would have thought possible. Um, and all of my customers are just so smart and they're so interested and they're so compassionate. And you're like, wow, let every ghost tour operator give the public a little more credit than I think they're being given currently um, by people who gloss over 
disturbing histories. Um, I think people are really ready to have these conversations. Um, and a very specific concrete example, a New York centric one is again, that triangle shirtwaist factory story. Um, it's like Leanna says, you're just one law away from being back in the Gilded Age. And I think we can all agree that everybody can agree. Um, and there's nothing radical about this, that working people deserve safety, respect and adequate pay. So, you know, to just remind folks that the ghosts of the past need not have died completely in vain. And as long as you remember the basic tenets of humanity that they remind us of, you can go out maybe the next time you shop and decide, well, you know, maybe I won't go to Dollar General today. Um, maybe I'll go to a secondhand store today, or maybe I'll write a letter to my congressman about this strip mining operation next to an endangered swamp or something. I'm not saying that you have to go and become a crazy social activist and like drop everything else in your life, but you can make these very small incremental changes where you see humanity and you have respect for it, or you even just like reconsider these exploitative stories from different angles and maybe try and understand them more specifically as part of our history in a non-judgmental way, um, in a non-accusatory way, in a way of just simply understanding and accepting. You know, I talked to the very beginning of this interview about how every historical personage is problematic. All people are problematic. Um, nobody is a paragon of virtue and it's nice to just kind of take the historical long view and remember that we have been hurting each other for as long as humans have existed, but we can try to hurt each other maybe a little less <laughs> if possible. <laughs> yeah. Just have a little compassion, you know? For sure. And I don't think that I've ever had anyone on my tour who has been unmoved by the triangle or who hasn't agreed in the basic concepts of human dignity and worker safety. You know, everybody, everybody's on the same page with that. That's, it's basic, basic stuff. Yeah, that, that was, um, that story in particular, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Um, I mean, I first read about that years ago and it's just, I mean, it's haunted me ever since. It is just so, so traumatic. Um, so I definitely encourage people to read a little bit more about that. But um, did you have anything that you wanted to, to add to all that, Liana? No, I think I think Andrea covered all of that. I think I I use I use triangle as a rallying cry. Um, yeah, that's whether or not that we talk most about residual haunting there, because that's a way to not sensationalize the 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 actual um, horrors. Um, I I just explain what happened. That's the horror, um, and there because we are giving ghost tours, we do have to talk about the paranormal angles there, but that residual haunting aspect of that impact of that horror on that site, it is, it is palpable and it is uncanny for people, even who know nothing about the fire that have been up in those top floors, which are now part of New York University, um, who feel unsettled. Um, and, and I, I feel like that's, uh, the only, the rallying cry um, uh, for for those that died in that 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 directly the the direct follow on from that fire was our first labor loss directly from that the outrage was so intense but but people had been fighting for protections for 
decades prior. Um, and even just the year before was the uprising of the 20,000, the, the largest labor strike uh, in, in our history. At that point, 20,000 people in Union Square demanding safe work in, working environments the year before Triangle. Um, and some changes were made by many of the companies uh, in the garment industry, but not Triangle. So that, that sense of rallying cry for me is the only way I can get my head around some of these things uh, and not feel like I'm adding to the problem. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, all of the, all, all, everything that Andrew was saying about all of that. Um, and then just, we really, as a society need to get back in touch with some empathy because, um, the divisiveness is, is very toxic and, um, and the rhetoric is really dangerous and we've got to get back to empathy. And I really do think that, um, the way sometimes to get back to empathy is, is by reading and is by telling stories. And so that's that's i am i am not going to be able to be an activist that's not my calling my calling will i sign petitions yes will i vote always will i try and encourage others to of course i will but my calling is to be a storyteller it's always been the case since i was uh my earliest memories are telling stories and so that's that's how i can do my part in that and also telling this telling these stories has felt like it is literally our life's work that is being uh, put into all of this, everything that everything in our lives, you know, has led for Andrea and I up to this point to this book, and and beyond. And so that's, uh, um, uh, that's sort of for me, the idea that none of this is static. And all of this is still active. And all of this is something that um, our, our guests and our readers can take with them as their own respective rallying cries. Mm -hmm. And I think I would love it if guests and readers took with them the reminder from our ghostly friends that this is where we all end up, you know, and what could be more common and more human and more unifying than the collective act of remembering that we will all be future ghosts. We are all future ghosts. So I, I think that it's a, a nice way for us to remember our shared humanity and, you know, again, the divisiveness is really upsetting. Um, and it's just like, there's no more, we're all in this together idea than death, you know? All right. So uh, where can we find more about you guys and your work? And, uh, and where can people go to take your tour? Well, the tours are in New York City. Uh, the website is burrowsofthedead.com. Please do not make fun of my terrible web design. I get 10 to 12 emails a day from people offering to fix my website. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Um, but if you are actually a good web designer, please drop me a line. <laughs> so go to birthofthedead.com. It still functions and you can buy tickets there. And we do tours in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens pretty much most of the year, except the dead of winter um, and the dog days of August. But we're always around. We're always there. Um, I'm very lazy on social media these days, but I do occasionally check in at the Burrows of the Dead Instagram and I will say hi to you if you reach out to me or email me or DM me or whatever, um, if you're nice. And uh, I think that's about it for me. I am my company, my company is me. I don't have a web presence anymore. <laughs> uh, uh, if you go to lianareneheber.com, um, that's my website and um, I am on all the social medias. I'm not, I don't check Facebook often, but I'm on Twitter as long as Twitter still exists. 
um, and uh, Instagram. Um, you can, I'm, I'm on just about every social media platform. The thing I'm most active on for the moment is Twitter and Instagram. Um, and then uh, I will respond to emails through my website again, if they're nice. Um, and I have lots of fiction. So if you just put my name into, you know, uh, book retailers of any kind, you will find my fiction and my nonfiction uh, equally. Um, I do have a landing page on my website that's like, where do you start with Leanna's books? And so it, it says, if you're looking for this kind of thing in a spooky Victorian sense, then you might want to start here. So I do write in a sort of a shared universe uh, that my characters cross over from one to the next, but I do have separate series. Um, and uh, I also have an Etsy shop. So if you go to Torch and Arrow is my Etsy. And it's uh, so I try to take vintage jewelry pieces that have been broken and I use the pieces, reconstitute them, make new things with them. So it's sort of Gothic, steampunk, neo-Victorian. Um, and so that's Torch and Arrow on Etsy. And the link, the link to my Etsy is on all of my social media. You can find those links there. Um, and, uh, and yeah, if you like the sound of my voice, you can also, I have a bunch of um, speculative fiction uh, some of which are actually not even just Victorian uh, well, uh, novellas that I narrate the audiobooks for on a site called Scribed. So that's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. And it's a subscription service and it's a ton of content on there. So all kinds of like um, out of print stuff has some electronic digital copies on there. And then they're also doing new fiction, which is fun. So I've been um, doing uh, a bunch of different novellas for them across that tie into some of my other series, but also just some speculative fun and kind of like imaginative things. Uh, I can kind of experiment a little bit with my fiction in that regard. Um, and so that's been keeping me busy too. So, and, and stay tuned with us because uh, this, is not, this is not the end of our work in the spectral realm and we can't say anything more about it legally yet. Oh, that is so, so exciting. Guys, thank you so much. This has been absolutely incredible. Thank you for your time. Of yeah, course. thanks for having me. Anytime. Once again, I'd like to thank Andrea James and Leanna Renee Heber for stopping by. Their new book is A Haunted History of Invisible Women and it's out now. You can visit them at burrowsofthedead.com. As a special bonus this week, we have a mini episode on Patreon where Andrea, Liana, and I share some of our personal ghost stories from our years of being tour guides. So if you're interested in that, check us out on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. And speaking of which, thank you to our brilliant patrons on Patreon. Big hugs and so much love to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. As always, there are other ways to support the show as well. You can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Mastodon at Dirty Sexy History. We will post photos from today's show on our Instagram, and you can also check out our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. At the website, you will find links to our guests and our online merch store, and there's all kinds of good stuff up there. Also, we are back to adding new articles every week, so stop by and check them out. And we are always, always looking for new history writers for the website. So if you are a historian, history student, or just really into writing about history, get in touch. 
Once again, you can reach us through DirtySexyHistory.com. Have a great week, guys. See you next time.